think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. This weekend is the spring change to daylight savings time, otherwise known as my favorite time to be a birder. Not necessarily the best time for birding, but my favorite time to be a birder. There's a difference there, I'll explain. Everyone loves the fall back because you get that extra hour of sleep. Uh, But I'm a huge fan of the spring forward because for that brief and glorious two or three weeks, once your body adjusts, but before the days start lengthening, it is actually the easiest time to get up at sunrise for birding. Uh, I recall a time... Um, I don't know, 10 years ago now, I actually planned a birding trip around daylight savings time or planned it around the arrival of daylight saving time because um, the relationship between the sunrise and my alarm was actually perfect because the sun sun really didn't rise until 8 o'clock a.m. instead of the usual 6.30, 7 o'clock a.m. start time that that you usually see. Anyway, I felt like I was nailing it. I was getting out before dawn every day, at least until the days lengthen again. You're caught out. We've got that to look forward to. I have some ABA news to pass on. We recently announced our ABA Young Birders of the Year. If you're not familiar with the Young Birder of the Year mentoring program, it is one of the longest running initiatives that the ABA has sponsored. The short version is if you are a birder between the ages of 10 to 18, you complete these modules, which are essentially you know, birding skills, activities like illustration, photography, conservation, field notebooks, etc. You submit them and our community of mentors, many of whom are names who listeners in the birding world have probably heard of before, some, some pretty big names. Uh, every submission is given feedback, which is really cool, and scored. And those who are the top scores are our Young Birders of the Year for a given year. And this year we have two in the younger age group, it is Katie Warner of Vancouver, Washington. And in the older group, it is Joaquin Galindo of McAllen, Texas. So congratulations to Katie and Joaquin. And thanks so much, obviously, to our sponsors, Koa Optics and the Corner Lab of Ornithology, and of course, to all of our members and donors who help support this really great program. We love keeping ABA Young Birders of the Year in the ABA family. You've heard former... YBY, Young Birders of the Year on this podcast, uh, Ioana Saraton, Jordan Rudder, Noah Stricker, Marky Mutchler, Joanna Beam, Kyan Sweeney. It's cool to see these birders go on to do cool birdie things and kind of stay in the birding world. If you're interested in learning more, the link to the ABA Young Birder of the Year program is in the show notes, but it's also aba.org slash young hyphen birder hyphen year hyphen contest. Maybe easier to go to the show notes. On the show this week, We're doing something a little bit different. Birding editor Ted Floyd joins me to talk about birds. And you might say we always talk about birds around here, but this is very explicitly just kind of talking about birds with no particular focus. Ted and I went birding. We shared our eBird checklists with each other, and we talk about those checklists. 
So it's, it's a little different. Let me know what you think. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the beginning of March 2021. Finally, something other than Red Wings to report. It's, uh, it's the other thrush. A field fair, the second in the ABA area so far this year, was seen in St. John's, Newfoundland. In case you're wondering, the Red Wing in St. John is still around, so St. John's is the only place in North America where you can currently get both Euro thrushes at the same time, which is uh, pretty neat, actually. I have a couple first records to talk about, both in the Northeast. To start, a crested caracara was seen this week in West Haven, Connecticut. There was a period about... Five years ago, where it seemed like every state and province in the Northeast was getting a crested caracara record, there are still questions about whether there were a dozen caracaras in play or, you know, just a handful cruising around. In any case, every state surrounding Connecticut got one then, including Rhode Island, so it's nice to finally plug that hole, as it were. Uh, Interestingly enough, there was one in Vermont almost exactly one year ago. And to Delaware, the home of the ABA, where a well-documented Pacific loon at Indian River Inlet in Sussex County finally, unequivocally, puts that species on the state list. I say that because a previous record looks to have been a mistaken ID and was somewhat controversially added to the state list. There is no doubt about this one this week in 2021, however. Those are the highlights of the week, but we round up the entire rarity landscape every Friday morning with the ABA's Rare Bird Alert at aba.org slash RBA. You can also join our Rare Bird Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash ABA Rare or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. I'm joined today by my colleague, Ted Floyd, editor of the ABA's Birding Magazine, and we're going to do something a little bit different today. We've never done a podcast quite like this but you know it's it's march there's there's not a lot going on we might as well try something different so we we both went birding this morning and i I should say just for the sake of you know our listeners edification that it is we're recording this on uh, tuesday march 2nd uh we went birding we stepped outside our houses and walked around and you know looked for the birds that were around and we have shared our ebird checklist to each other with each other and uh, we're, we're going to chat about what we saw, what, what is unique, what is the same, what is, who knows? Who knows where this is going to go? Ted, welcome once again back to the podcast. The last couple of times you've been here, we've talked about COVID. Uh, I'm excited to talk about something different. <laughs> with yep. you. Well, thanks for having me, Nate. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking about birds and uh, probably not much more than that. It's always great to catch up with you and talk about, you know, sometimes serious topics like uh, sure. education and outreach. And those are very, very important. And uh, sometimes we're getting to the rather esoteric realm of uh, of bird names, and I suppose it's conceivable we would <laughs> go down that slippery slope today. But yeah, I think the idea here this morning is we're going to talk about what you saw in North Carolina this morning and what I saw in Colorado this morning. Yeah, it's a very sliding doors sort of uh, conversation. <laughs> yeah. You know, who knows who knows where we're going to go. Exactly. So um, yeah, so Ted, tell me about where you went. If you can kind of paint a picture of where you went this morning and sort of what it was like, generally speaking, non non birding, just what was the experience. Sure. So I live in the former small town, now sort of burgeoning city of Lafayette. It's about halfway between Boulder and Denver. So we're up in northeastern Colorado, just east of the very steep foothills of the the Rocky Mountains. Uh, It's it's suburbia, basically, but we have a lot of nice little green spaces around Mm -hmm. my house. It was 28 degrees Fahrenheit when I went out at 747 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Uh, Clear, uh, brilliant, sort of Rocky Mountain sunshine. 
really no wind to speak of at all, which is always a blessing in, in Colorado <laughs> in early March. And then I just sort of walked around what I call the the greater Greenlee ecosystem. It's a complex of little open spaces and a lot of you know, residential areas, a park called Greenlee Preserve, a lake called Wanaka Lake, another pond called Hecla Pond, and a lot of little greenways, sort of uh, passageways that go between homes and, and increasingly businesses in, uh, in, in the area. And um, got to visit a couple of ponds and some open areas. And we don't really have extensive forests here, but uh, little groves of, of cottonwoods and willows and so forth. So a nice mix of, of habitat on a uh, sunny, cool, blessedly windless morning in, um, in early March. And I assume you're going to do the same for us now for North Carolina. Sure. Yeah. I live in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, which is in the Western Piedmont. We're probably about an hour and a half from anything I would call the Appalachians, but you start to see a little bit of rolling hills in this part of the country. So I, I, I also, I live in sort of suburbia. Uh, I stepped out my front door uh, after my daughter went to school. She's actually in in-person school these days. My son is still at home most of the week. So uh, I stepped out, walked out the door and went to this power line cut, which mm. runs sort of behind the uh, my neighborhood and um, back into the woods that are city property around uh, one of the large lakes in Greensboro. And um, it was, it was, the temperature was actually pretty similar. It was about 40 degrees mm. here, 45 degrees. It was warm enough that I could get away with wearing a sweatshirt, but cool enough that I wished that I had grabbed uh, a warmer hat. It's it's very much wooded, kind of that second growth. You know, 70 years ago, it would have been pasture, but now it's kind of overgrown. Uh, there's a trail, kind of an abandoned city trail that runs back alongside uh, Lake Higgins, the backside of Lake Higgins. And so this trail kind of runs alongside this real marshy, uh, I don't know, it's like the back arm of a reservoir so it's all reedy and marshy a lot of dead snags and stuff mm. and i've got a few places i like to check there um there's a big in the fall there's a big poison ivy you know brambly area that usually has good birds but it was a little slow this morning um but still you know saw a lot of the things that i expect to see on a late winter day here in um, the southeastern united states i can't resist making a, a cultural observation about the differences mm. between north carolina and colorado so to me, because it was 28 degrees Fahrenheit with sunshine, no wind, it was absolutely balmy, and you were lamenting not having a jacket <laughs> on. I actually went out in my t-shirt, and oh my, I was yeah. at, but yeah, because it's just so warm compared to what we had during the uh, the month of February here. So uh, yeah, this is uh, as good as it gets for a uh, a pleasant day in early March in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. Those are the habitats that I sort of have it. Like I said, it's the woods, but there's also this really nice, big, wide power line cut mm. where these kind of high, high powered. I don't know exactly what the term is, but you know the really tall towers that have the really big, thick wires. Uh, but they've cut the power line pretty wide. It's about fifty feet wide, and you can kind of walk down the middle of it. And it's all brambly, blackberry brambles, and um, increasingly Ceresia lispidiza. Mm. But this time of year, before that comes up, but it's it's a great place for lots of sparrows and stuff. So I usually find a lot of neat things kind of in the in the tangles there cool. hey uh, nate while you were uh, talking i promised i was listening but i i, I, mm -hmm. I couldn't i couldn't resist uh, scrolling through your checklist here real, yeah. quick, real quickly and <laughs> okay so i'm gonna take over the steering wheel for just a moment here but i, I can't resist no, go for but, it i can't resist putting you on the spot and asking you so I'll, I'll give you a statistic here you saw 26 species this morning i saw yes. i think 36 and that's mostly because i had some water that, that you don't yeah, have more water uh, yeah my, my, my question is uh, how many species did we see in common? So there's some species that are Ooh. in your checklist in North Carolina and mine in Colorado. And again, 26 yeah, for you. Scrolling back and forth between for you. Them. Yeah. So, well, I was going to see if I could just put you on the spot and have you just throw out a number and see if it was the, um, the, the right I number. I bet that it's about between 12 and 15. 
That's not that high. It's, that, it's only eight. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So just real quickly here, it looks like it's red-tailed hawk. That's one. Mm -hmm. a blue jay, two. American crow, three. American robin, four. House finch, five. American goldfinch, six. Songs Downy woodpecker. Oh, songs for seven. Woodpeckers. And Downy woodpecker, eight. Yep. There we yeah. go. So those are the eight that we have in common. Did I put white breast? Oh, no. I forgot to put white breast in oh. that hatch. So uh, really, I said 27 species. I need to go okay. back and edit that. Right. I did have a white breast in that hatch when okay. I stepped out. Although, I mean, arguably, those are different species. But That's we're right. going by current taxonomy. Right. So you have uh, that white breast in that hatch. The Carolinensis uh, white breasted yeah, nut hatch that gives the yank yank or yark yark. And ours yep. is the interior Wester uh, Nelson nut hatch that gives this, to especially to an eastern bird, a completely unfamiliar sort of. It's just as the call is as different as can be from the yank yank or yark yark of the eastern white breasted nut hatch. So was there anything on your list that was particularly surprising? to you something that you might not have expected or something that you don't see every time you do this walk because i assume you do this sort of loop pretty regularly it, very regularly we could go on to ebird and see how many i'm <laughs> embarrassed to say thousands of times i've i've done it and that that's not an exaggeration yeah. uh, the answer is no unless you were to have asked me this question a year ago in which case there would have been a, a greenly preserved life bird for me oh, really? <laughs> yeah and that would be stellar's jay so the stellar's hmm. jay is a bird that uh, just blasted out of the mountains uh, this past fall, perhaps due to the fires and, and perhaps due to other uh, factors. And Stellar's Jays have just enjoyed a better presence on the eastern plains of Colorado and even well into Kansas and uh, Nebraska yeah. than in, I think, sort of recent memory. So there was a Stellar's Jay yakking away just along a, a busy street in my neighborhood. And I, you know, I, it's still a rare enough bird that I sort of give a kind of quiet private fist bump on hearing it, but it's probably also my, you know, eighth or ninth detection this, this winter. So it'd been a red letter day, mega rarity had we done this a year ago, but this has been the year that there've been stellar chase here. Uh, other than that, every other bird out here, you know, worthy in its own right. And I, I hope worthy of discussion it was an entirely, I would say expected species for mm -hmm. March 2nd. I, I have to also say, I, I was hoping I would get a first of season and, and, and I didn't. Yeah, it's this it's it, this is just an observation on the birding world uh, in early March. Everyone wants spring to get here very quickly mm. and it tends to always take uh, much longer than people. Every single year, people are surprised by how long it takes. But yeah, um, yeah, no, no first of years for me either. No first of seasons, I should say. Hey, I'm going back to your list right now. And a bird that actually caught my um attention because it's a bird that we don't have at all in Colorado. I think every other species here we get at some time or another, somewhere. some, some yeah. somewhere, even, even sort of real Eastern. Oh, sorry, sorry. We don't get tough to tip mouse at all, but, but, but up, up to the top, um, a black vulture, I, I guess I was surprised mm. and maybe I shouldn't say I was surprised, but I, I noticed that you have no turkey vultures on your list. And I guess I think yeah. of black vulture as the somewhat less common of the two vultures, but that's not the case for you. They're pretty 50-50 here mm. this time of year. Uh, the black vultures get slightly more scarce in the winter, uh, but they're still around. It yeah, it was it, that surprised me too because I looked very closely at the... Uh, so I had a pair of them fly over as I was walking back home, and then a group of three I kind of saw over the over a little bit further away. And um, yeah, I, I expected there to be a turkey vulture in mm. there, but uh, no, just black vultures. I, I assume that they're roosting somewhere. They like to kind of hang out near the power line cuts. Mm. Um, it's kind of a micro habitat that I, I find them in more than the turkey vultures, which tend to be you know, spread out a little bit wider. But yeah, no, no turkey vulture, just the black vultures. Except for the, the black vulture, it looks like almost every bird on the... Oh, except the black vulture, maybe the cedar waxwing. 
every mm-hmm. bird on this list is like incredibly vocal. Was it really loud out there today? There were parts of it that were. Um, so yeah, I like to focus on the power line cut. I spend a lot of time there because it is where the where the birds are are most vocal, just because it's the most the most diverse bit of habitat, such that you can even call it there. And um, yeah, you know, things have been super loud lately here in uh, North Carolina the last couple of weeks. We had uh, a very cold stretch uh, along the same time when, you know, the middle of the country was seeing that super, super cold mm. part. Uh, but ever since things have warmed up a little bit and the trees are budding and the birds are singing a lot, there's a lot of bird song uh, in my neighborhood right now. Of all these birds, I, I'm pretty sure I heard, I'm just looking at my list again. I did not hear the red-tailed hawk. Mm. But I heard everything else. Everything yeah, when, else when I think of birds, like, um, again, these are not common birds for me at all, but tufted titmouse, Carolina wren, mm-hmm. uh, say red-shouldered hawk, uh, red-bellied woodpecker, for sure. I think of just yeah. really loud birds. Yeah. And I, our red-winged blackbirds, by the way, did you have red-winged blackbirds? You I did not did, have red-winged not. blackbirds. <laughs> so oh. Our red-winged blackbirds were fantastically noisy this morning. Yeah. But other than the red-winged blackbirds, yeah, the flickers are starting to sing. It's sort of quiet out there. There are plenty of birds, huh. as you can see from, from my, my checklist. But uh, yeah, singing is just sort of getting started right now, really. I should say that the swamp sparrow that I saw uh, was not singing. It was just calling. Um, and that was probably the most surprising bird on my list. Um, I didn't. It's not a place that I usually see here or see swamp sparrows, even though there is quite a bit of kind of that muddy, muddy, brambly kind of stuff that they like. Um, I don't know that I've ever had them at this site. I have had them elsewhere in the county. I have a general feel for where you live, but are birds like the the Phoebe and the Grackle uh, returns, or have they been here all winter for you? They're returns in, I mean, they're scattered in mm-hmm. the winter. You can find them in the winter, but there are definitely more. Phoebes are sort of around in the neighborhood all, all throughout the winter, but the Grackles are starting to show, like flying over my house or down my street. Uh, much more regularly now in the last uh, week or so. And that's that's a good sign of spring for for this part of the country. Totally, the grackles, yeah. And uh, you know. grackles, by the way, which are, are abundant in our area, uh, I, which actually surprised me when I came to Colorado. I wasn't expecting that they were going to be so mm-hmm. uh, pro- prolific. They're really late here. They, they We don't really see the first big flocks of grackles until around April 1st. And I mm-hmm. grew up the same latitude in, in western Pennsylvania. And that was like the bird that got back in February, you know, late yeah. February, even though it was, it was definitely still snowy and, and cold and dark and the, the, the grackles were so reliable, but it's a, no, it's, I mean, it's not a May return. It's, it's an early April return, but it's a much later return out here. And yeah, get back to your point about how spring does sort of take its sweet old time mm. getting to us. Um, I just had one other, I was wondering about one other thing on your list. Um, it's actually about people. Oh, I, I, yeah. I picture you sort of in a, area that you've sort of found for yourself and it's just Nate's little spot. Is that true or? That's pretty true. So mm-hmm. this, this, I, I, I found it just by looking at Google maps because mm-hmm. I was, I was kind of, especially when the pandemic started uh, and we were home and I wasn't traveling very far, even to nearby birding locations. Um, I, I knew that the trail, this trail, this called Beach Bluff Trail, um, went around the back end of, of Lake Higgins and, um, or like, yeah, I think it's Lake Higgins. Either Lake Higgins or Lake Brandt. I always get those mixed up. Not that it matters to anyone listening. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I knew that trail was there. And I, I knew that there had to be a way to get there from where I was. And so I did a little exploring. Uh, and, I, and that's how I found it. And no, it's not a place I've ever seen any people there. I have seen signs of people. I have seen like dog 
tracks and I have seen, you know, horse, I don't know, scat horse leavings because there's a a horse barn nearby and i think that they ride back into this area sometimes but i've never actually run into another person there which is um odd but also kind of it's kind of nice you know it's it's a place that i can go back into and and not expect to see people and you know uh this time this time in this pandemic world that we're living in that's actually been kind of a nice thing yeah so that's just to let you the listeners know, and also to let you know, to uh, experience completely different from my own. Say. Yeah. So the, the, the park, the sort of complex of parks that I birded in this morning have been sort of gradually adding humans to them ever since mm. we moved here about 15 years ago. And the, the description you just provided sort of sounds like the uh, experience of birding here maybe 15 years ago. Yeah. It's uh, just a sea of humanity out there now, even on a, you know, on a work day. Uh, I actually saw genuine vintage real life bird watchers in fact a fair number of them out there um i knew a few of them and some of them were just you know folks out out birding i probably saw maybe four or five different parties of bird watchers you know couples and and singles this morning my my favorite experience was a person who i didn't recognize her through her mask she just had pulled up in a um there there, there are a lot of paved streets in the area that that i bird Mm -hmm. and um she, she seemed to want to be in to ask me a question i i wonder if she you know she was asking for directions or if, if i had done something wrong and i got closer and over the the roar of her you know the, the, there were several cars there she, she just said spotted toey interior subspecies <laughs> and, and in fact she had one up in a tree and had just you know, thought to you know inform a perfect stranger uh, I, I did have binoculars and a camera with me that there was a spotted toey there and it turns out that we we knew each other but uh, yeah i thought i was about to give somebody directions or to you know <laughs> explain Right, I received directions to, to a spotted toe. She, she, yeah, she had seen it first, or, or to you know have to uh, account for myself. What was I doing out there, or something like that? So yeah, and, you know, I probably saw—I shouldn't say probably—I mean, I saw more than a hundred people, uh, at huh. least you know, uh, eight or nine of whom were actually bird watching this morning. So mm-hmm. a difference there for sure. Ted, uh, I want to ask yeah. you about your geese. Oh yes, uh, I noticed on your checklist you uh, you have about an equal number of cackling geese and Canada geese, with one outlier. Um, how how often does that happen? How often do you get exactly 50-50? It's funny. So if we had had this conversation literally last week, or perhaps if we would have this conversation next week, the answer would be not too often. We're in a condition of a dramatic uh, sort of um, turnover of our waterfowl right mm-hmm. now. And, and and actually, those numbers are ex- season, exceedingly yeah. low. They could easily have been, instead of 12 of each, it could have been you know, 1,200 of, of each. Uh, just with the weather sort of uh, turning mild and a lot of the lakes opening up, we are getting um, a departure of our cackling geese again. You know, and by the way, there will be other big flocks of cackling geese in the in the weeks to come. But I think the days of you know the thousands on our lake are probably getting behind us right now. So that's just a random thing. I almost winced when I put in that perfectly. <laughs> it's a palindrome there: twelve Richardson's cackling yeah. geese, one Canada goose, twelve Moffatai Max by Canada goose. It, it just it just so happened. But, but those I, I should say are um, exact. You know what we call one by one counts in an eBird. And the behaviors were as different as can be. Nate, you can see my notes, but probably most other people can't. Well, we'll put the link to your checklist in the notes so people can check it out. But the the, the cackling geese were just a a low flock of um, flyovers heading. They they were quite, quite low to the ground, just above the treetops. And um, you could hear them and and actually see them well enough to to identify them as cackling geese and just sort of hurrying north. You know, (laughs) all of our cackling geese, as as far as you know, winter way to our north in northern Canada and uh, northern Alaska and probably Greenland as well. And then the 12 Canada geese were actually six pairs of our, uh, 
we call them the big uglies. Mm. I think they're beautiful, actually. But the, uh, the the greater or giant Canada geese and uh, just six widespread pairs. So they'll be they're squawking around now. They'll be building nests in a couple of weeks, and the uh, little yellow fuzzballs will be uh, walking around by the middle of April. Yeah, you're you're. I, I am very jealous of your um, waterfowl diversity on the lake. The only thing I had were the uh, the wood ducks, which weren't even on the water. They were flying past, squealing like they do. And uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, that's a that's a nice roundup of uh, of waterfowl there. It, it's a hodgepodge. Nice um, yeah, yeah, so uh, gadwall, wigeon, mallard, greenwing teal, ringneck duck, goldeneye, and um, hooded merganser. So it's actually. I'd say it's about average. There, there could be more. I, every day you miss something like, where is the common merganser today? Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's another miss here. I'm not, I can't figure out what it was. Well, you have there. a duck spa. So. Uh, oh, I, yeah, I do. Have the, and, and, yeah, so that bird was a, um, uh, probably an athia, one, you know, a, a scop or a ringneck duck. It was just oh, this yeah, thing yeah. that dove and I never got back on it uh, again. But it's nice to be in an area that has these little ponds and they're, they're just, you know, suburban duck ponds. They're, they're, mm-hmm. Two of them are, you know, have paved trails around them. The other is well-peopled. It has a, a big observation deck. And, uh, you know, there's, this is not the, the primeval marsh in, you know, the remote mm-hmm. Saskatchewan or something like that. These are uh, urban, you know, suburban duck ponds, but uh, one of them is loaded with crayfish. Another stocked with um, uh, uh, fisherman fish, carp, and, and, and so forth. And um, another is sort of a more of a natural marsh uh, wetland that attracts dabbling ducks. So it's, it's a good little mix and the birds do go back and forth between them. I'll note that the one duck that you did see, the wood duck, is the one I still haven't found this year. So it'll, it'll show oh, really? up eventually, but yeah, not, not a wood duck anywhere for me yet. They were, they, I had four total and they were two pairs, um, hmm. a male and a female both times. And I, I'm pretty sure the second pair was probably roosting up in a tree somewhere because they flew out of some woods uh, that did not have any water nearby. So I yeah. keep looking for that behavior with our mergansers so the uh, the hooded merganser mm-hmm. still has not yet bred in my area although it's summered and there are plenty of sort of old cottonwoods and even wood duck boxes that i think the hooded mergansers could make good use of the hooded merganser used to be strictly a winter bird in colorado but its numbers have increased drastically uh, since i've been here and it's breeding in a few places and i just keep thinking that one of these days i'll find a uh, a pair of hoodies to go along with the woodies but it, it hasn't happened yet I have a question about your eBird practice, mm. Ted. Are you an ad species as soon as you see it person? I assume you're using eBird Mobile. So actually, no, I'm not no. using eBird Mobile. I take a, what? heaven forbid, a, a, a notebook out <laughs> in the field with me. Yeah, I um, it's probably a personal preference more than anything else. Um, there's a little bit of a uh, sort of a pedagogical aspect to it. I find that I spend too much time perfecting my checklist as i go mm, if i'm in the yeah yeah it's just that kind of I'm a little obsessive about getting it all right so no I, I write things down or commit them to memory uh and then i actually enter the checklist um when i get back home now i should say though that i do note the exact like start time on, on my phone i've actually right. screen screen capture the phone and the temperature so uh can't see where i started at 749 so that that was not memory i actually did make a little screen capture. Yeah, I, I know that it's more efficient, to, you know, all things considered, to use the app, but I'm actually, let me be honest with you. I do use the app from time to time, especially when I'm in the field with other people and showing them how to use the app. But when I'm by yep. myself, I basically kind of go birding the old school way, keep notes um, to some extent as I go along, and then quickly uh, create the checklist when I get back. Hmm. 
So yeah. not the answer you were expecting, I suppose. But <laughs> no, well, it's interesting yeah. because I, I mean, that's the way I used to do it yep. before eBird Mobile came along. Obviously, right. I had a little notebook. I wrote everything down. Um, I have found that I am much better at maintaining the total numbers of species, like getting a more accurate count ever since I went to eBird Mobile. Maybe it, that says something about me, like I'm not very good at that sort of thing when I was out birding typically before, you know, using the notebook. But um one of the one of the things that I, I remember very distinctly is this is back when I lived in, in Chapel Hill and my local patch was this place called Mason Farm, which is a nice little perfect little two mile loop around this really nice little University of North Carolina Chapel Hill managed preserve sort of place. And um it was with blue gray gnat catchers. So it was, you know, it must have been early spring, uh middle mid spring, April or so. And I found that um I ended up seeing far more blue gray gnat catchers when I would count them individually as I went on eBird than I did when I would estimate after I got to the end by like an order of magnitude. Um, so I would, I would end up putting on a, on a checklist when I was entering it after the fact, like maybe 10 blue gray gnat catchers. But when I started keeping track of how many I was actually seeing around this trip, around this loop, it would be something like 35 or, or 40 blue gray gnat catchers, which, uh, you know, kind of sold me on the on the use of eBird Mobile, but I certainly understand my, my own practices to um, take it out every, I don't know, 10 minutes or so and add what I need and adjust numbers as needed. I don't kind of keep it out and constantly be looking at it because I don't like to look at my phone constantly. In the sure. Anyway. Yeah. And and yeah, I think that I, I agree with everything you said and you're, you're almost sort of making the case in, in real life <laughs> for all our listeners here for sort of a, a confession for me. I guess I'm going to start doing it <laughs> tomorrow. But um, I, I do note that except for birds that are real flocky, like, like for example, mm. geese or red-winged blackbirds that yeah. you know, I think I probably get accurate counts for, I am struck by how when I discipline myself to really pay attention how much I'm missing. And I, I went on this um, this house sparrow kick, actually, um, a couple of weeks ago. I was really just interested in photographing um, molting house sparrows. Oh, actually, they're not molting. They're, they're wearing into their spring plumages mm -hmm. now uh, and singing house sparrows. And there's, there's a period there where my, my house sparrow count on eBird is like 50 and 60. And I'm just scrolling down to see what I got today. Um, I have 10. I, like that's what I consciously remembered seeing 10, but yeah, I mean, there are just so many little corners where, you know, you're looking for a more, if you will, exciting bird. Uh, I've seen some other birds on my list here, the raven or the bush tit or the red-breasted nuthatch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by golly, there are, you know, 12 or 15 house sparrows just j jabbering away in there yeah. and, and, and you miss that's them. That's so. white-throated sparrows for me. Sure. Yeah. That, that would be, a, yeah. but I think if I recall correctly, at 22, that would be a probably an all-time yeah. record for Colorado to get 22. Yeah, that's in, probably in an, an under, undercount actually. But, gotcha. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, for so many of these birds here, um, so, I mean, I'm confident with the 15 starlings because I actually remember the two flocks of starlings that I saw. But for things like the house sparrow, the house finch, um, the black-capped chickadees, I, I wonder if those are low numbers. Mm. Yeah. I have a question about your corvids. You have a, a, a lovely, diverse list of corvids yeah. here. One, two, three, four, five, five species. Yeah. Um, are they making weird noises right now? Because my crows are making lots of really weird noises. Right. So corvids make marvelous noises all through the year, but this is the mm -hmm. absolute best time of the year to hear completely yeah. whacked out sounds by corvids. And most of all for me, the, the black-billed magpie. So the, mm. the magpie all year round gives that sort of classic mag, 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 or sometimes just a mag, 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 mag call. It's just a, it's a very harsh sort of white noise monosyllabic utterance given singly or in pairs but this time of year they give this glorious uh sort of it's called a sub song but i i don't like calling it a sub song or whisper song because it's as beautiful as like any thrush's song it uh involves these uh wild sort of slurs and whistles and and cackles it's a little bit like a like the song of a starling or maybe a great-tailed 
crackle and i mean that mm. that sort of whistled song there so that yeah the magpies give this wild uh again it's, it's often described as a whisper song or a sub song but it's 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 quiet it is quiet but it's very very beautiful um other birds like the um the blue jays and the, the crows are often giving a lot of sort of whistles and cackles the, the one yes. raven i heard this morning i actually wasn't sure if it's going to be i mean it looked like a raven as it flew over but it gave sort of crow-like cause and then some sort of whistles and the, finally as it as it was flying off it gave some honest to goodness you know croak 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 notes that only a raven would give so i think the ravens could do that at any time of the year but uh yeah corvids are variable in, in their sounds for sure and especially the, the magpies at this time of the year hmm. yeah my, my crows are making uh my neighborhood crows i should say are making a lot of really weird ravity croaky sounds that always have me kind of taking a second glance towards where they are but i, I still have not seen a raven uh in my in my immediate area though they are sort of nearby they're they're sort of scattered in the piedmont of north carolina uh they're you know famously ravens are kind of expanding their range eastward um they're still quite rare in the eastern part of the state but um you know they they nest and they're regular in the in the appalachians um they're kind of creeping eastward Uh, i see them every once in a while in my county usually while i'm driving like on the interstate they're soaring around like uh like big vultures the raven is one of those birds that for me like the pileated woodpecker perhaps for you we don't we don't have pileated woodpeckers in colorado that uh, even though they're an everyday experience here it's just the bird that um makes you stop i just mm-hmm. no matter how many times i see a raven i just have to pause at how marvelous the bird is it's I, it, it, these aren't things you don't know nate but uh, you know just for everybody's edification it's by far the largest passerine oh, on, on, on 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 earth yeah. Uh, yeah so the common raven in in all dimensions uh body mass wingspan uh t- bill le- a bill tip to tail tip is actually considerably larger than the red-tailed hawk which yeah. is you know not a small raptor at all <laughs> that's not a it's not a puny exhibitor or, or a little falcon or something the red tail is a big bird and a common raven in direct comparison with a red-tailed hawk is as i said bigger in every dimension it's just a huge bird mm-hmm. and just such cool things i mean it, it soars endlessly it, it can fly upside down it, it does those almost peregrine like swoops maybe, maybe golden eagle would be a better comparison actually and you know it is for me a an everyday bird and especially when i get into more urban areas so if i go down um into the the heart of downtown boulder the, the, the densest areas that's sort of the, the most likely place for me to find a raven but yeah a raven you know along with I don't know, a pileated woodpecker if i lived at sea an albatross or something uh, like that it's just the sort of bird that just you, you stand up and pay attention whenever you see or see or hear a raven yeah here in the southeast uh, I, I think of you know great blackback gull as being that yeah. kind of bird as well just like un- you underrate how large they are and yeah. how just like hefty and and you know imposing they, they really are until you you get a good look at one it's always very surprising yeah i um i know i don't think you either you nor i had a uh, great black back gull nor nor bald eagle no, no, that would this, be an this, exceptional this, 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 but, but, but to bald eagle i remember this was an experience years ago but we had a um a report of a a great black backed gull and it, it was incredible it was, it was an adult great black backed gull but it was at a, a lake fairly close to my house that has lots of wintering uh bald eagles on it mostly adults and we were actually trying to sort through the bald eagles to look for the great blackback gulls. They're actually <laughs> similar at, at, at a great distance. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're dark bodied birds with the great big white, white heads head. and yeah. bright big white tails. And of course, I, I get that a raven is, I'm sorry, that an eagle is bigger than a great 
back that goal, but not by all that much. And yeah, we actually had that thing. eagle, 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 eagle. Oh, there's the great black back goal. Yes. And yeah, I, I know what you mean. Just seeing a great black back goal is seeing a really large bird indeed. It says something about the attitude of a great black back goal that it would rather hang out with eagles than it would with the other goals. <laughs> yeah. too. It's very on brand. <laughs> and, and, and speaking of on brand, and this is sort of a, a grim thing to say, but I'll, I'll say it anyhow. If, if, if you ever do a, a, a internet search for, um, videos of great black back gulls eating living things it's incredible i mean they can eat hairs you know, I'm, yeah. you know the, the rabbit like things and uh large birds uh, you know uh, you know a uh, big passerines and um very large uh arthropods you know like whole crabs and and but it's most freaky to me is great black back gulls eating you know medium large mammals and uh mm. again if you ever want to spend, waste a little bit of time on the internet just just google videos of great black back gulls eating you have a strong <laughs> stomach yes, yes indeed All right. <laughs> yeah we have, uh, there's a, a good story of some friends of mine who are on a winter pelagic one of uh, brian pattison's seabirding trips a couple of years ago and they they watched a great black back gull and a gannet um actually fight over a dove key <laughs> the only dove key they saw that trip if i remember correctly uh and the dove key did not come out uh, very well on that uh, on that front I have no idea how we've gotten into gannets, but since you brought up the, the, <laughs> the, the, the gannet, and, and there's actually sort of a, a maybe a, a deeper point about all this, just that we learn something new every single day. I learned just yesterday that the wingspan of the gannet is greater than that of the turkey vulture. I never would have guessed that. I mean, really? I, know the, I know the gannets are huge. I mean, I, I totally get yeah. that. And they look very, very impressive uh, in, in flight. But uh, yeah, the gannet's wingspan actually approaches seven feet. And the turkey what? vultures is, yeah, I know. It's just, it's just it's, we're talking northern gannet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our, our gannet. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't know about the Cape gannet or something like that. But yeah, the, yeah, the northern gannet um, is, has a longer wingspan than the turkey vulture. Yeah, one of the birds that you have on your list that um, I, I always sort of associate, especially with uh, the front range or, or the, the west, is uh, bush tit. Such a cool bird, kind of taxonomically speaking, behaviorally speaking, all the things. Um, it must be nice to be able to go out and see uh, see bush tits without working too hard for it. Yeah, you're you're saving the the last for, be, for the, the best, the best, 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 best. best for last best best last. I have my, my sort of my my favorite bird uh, for the the very end here. I actually had a a, a piece uh, at my uh, at the how to yes. you know, the bird site called I think it was yes. called my favorite bird. And you know what does that really mean? I I like a lot of birds, but the, the, the bush tit sort of is my 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 current and now sort of you know long running favorite it's just it's it's a tiny bird we were talking about ravens a moment ago the bush tit is here's another bit of a virtual cocktail party trivia for you it's actually <laughs> the smallest passerine in north america north of mexico so it's smaller than the golden crown kinglet and really it, it really is yeah, oh, yeah it, it, really it's, it's it's tiny it's like barely five grams and if you take the tail away there's like nothing left right. over um yeah so bush tits are new to my area they they didn't occur here when we lived out here, and they're they're rapidly moving northward. They're all over the the Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins area. They're actually up into Wyoming now, so they're spreading northward uh, dramatically. It's it's easy to imagine that that's all due to the sort of gradual warming and drying of the climate, which I I do think is sort of the the ultimate driver of it. But there's a fascinating um, connection with humans uh, as well, and um, one of my kids. Uh, did a research project on this and even got to present it at a, at a bird meeting about, I, I'm not going to do justice to it, but I think he called it a, a culturally mediated co-evolution. I, 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 I'm sure I've got a word in there wrong, but yeah, so he's looking at how bush tits have um, 
gone over to suet feeders in just the past mm. 10 or 15 years. So they used to never visit feeders. If you look at the field guides, their statements in there to the effect of never comes to feeders. And now they huh. go, go to feeders like crazy. So they discovered suet feeders and they're just expanding like crazy. Uh, the other thing about bush tits is that they are completely profligate in uh, their choice of, of habitat. As long as it's shrubby, it doesn't matter to them if it's an exotic plant or not. And so they're flourishing as the, um, the whole region gets just sort of more and more uh, suburbanized and urbanized. The other thing I'll just mention here about bush tits is you can see this, but maybe nobody else can, or that they will when we link this. So I saw four bush tits today, which is actually a very mm -hmm. low number of bush tits. We think of seeing uh, you know, 25 yeah. bush tits at a time. And um, it was even um, a lower number than that because I saw two widely separated pairs of bush tits. So the bush tits go through this kind of uh, Jekyll and Hyde transition right around this time of the year when the big groups um, break up into the pairs and they well, they become actually fairly hard to see in March and April because they sort of go into seclusion as they begin to work huh. on their huge nests. And um, I haven't seen a nest yet this year, but probably will pretty soon. So yeah, just uh, had two pairs of, of bush tits. Uh, they were about a mile, well, three quarters of a mile apart from each other and uh, could tell they were pairs, well, because they were <laughs> paired up and seemed to be acting like pairs, but the, uh, the males and females uh, differ in eye color. So in each pair, mm -hmm. I could see the yellow-eyed female and the black-eyed male. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Again, I could go on and on and on and on, but that might not be a good idea. But yeah, the bush tit <laughs> is, I'll call it my favorite bird. It's certainly one of my favorite birds. It's been so fun to, um, to watch the, uh, the sort of welcome invasion of my neighborhood by bush tits in the 15 years that I've lived out here. Thank you so much, Ted. Um, we will have to do this again with another time of year, maybe a couple new places. This could be good. This I feel like this could be a good regular podcast feature. This was fun. Um, we'll put the links to our eBird checklist in the show notes if you want to see exactly what we saw. But um, in the meantime, you can check out Ted. He has a biweekly column at the ABA website called How to Know the Birds. Um, he's also on the podcast from time to time. It's, it was nice to talk to you about something that was not COVID. <laughs> Nate, thanks again for having me. Had a great time. Absolutely. Thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Please consider joining the ABA if you like what we do here. You'll get access to our print publications, discounts to our partners, and our thanks as we build that better birding community in the U.S., Canada and the world. Get information about all of our memberships, including e-memberships at aba.org slash join. I do want to make some shout outs this week to Glenn Loveless of Seaforth, Delaware, Greg Luckert of Barrington, Rhode Island, Karen Snepp and family of Kirkland, Washington, Michael Giacchino of Marlboro, Massachusetts, Jennifer Lazendorf and the Lazendorfs of Spring Green, Wisconsin, and Ray Van Allen and the Van Allen family of Sanforth, North Carolina. Carolina, all of whom recently joined the ABA noted this podcast as a reason. You know, I keep thinking that I will come up on a week where I have zero names to read and I haven't yet. And for that, I am very grateful. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who thinks that we have need to have some sort of mentoring program for people who imitate the sounds of birds with their mouths. We can call it the tongue birders of the year. Technical production is by John Lowry, who'd like to see a program for those birders who keep a list of birds they've seen defecate. You know, dung birders. Additional help from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who have advocated for a program to help those birders most interested in self-propelled flight. It's a small group, but we got to take care of those flung birders of the year. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. You know me, I like to get into birders' heads. 
to see who is able to actively differentiate the conscious birding self from the unconscious birding self. Answering the question, are we ever really not birding? It's for, um, and I'm really sorry about this, the young birders of the year. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcasts at Aviated Org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.